0: Hello and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series, the Book of Philippians, we'll explore the lessons we can learn from the Book of Philippians related around joy in the midst of suffering. Let's turn now to part four of the series, The Loneliest Number. ever experienced the stress of a move? Anybody raise your hand if you've experienced the stress of a move. We've got a few people who experienced. I've <laughs> got a few who are laughing. At me. I know what you, I know what's up. Just extend your hands in this direction. Let's just pray for this lovely couple of, <laughs> no. It, it's stressful, right? How many of you, um, has anybody ever moved uh, five times that's here? We got any, got a five time, we got a few five times. Has anybody moved only four times? right, let's see, it's four times three. Anybody, is anyone living in the same house they grew up in? Let me ask that. I should have started there. You're living in the same house you grew up? Now you have moved though, right? And, and you've moved, but <laughs> that's a little tricky. It's a little tricky. I'm so jealous of those who are living in that, maybe move once or twice. I have moved, I did the math the other day, I have moved 17 times in my life. Um, 17 times. And some of you are like, yeah, but you're a Methodist pastor. That's the thing. I'm it's not because of the Methodist conference. <laughs> like, I'm still at my first appointment in the Methodist church. That ain't what did it at all. I just apparently am a glutton for punishment. And every time I hear of someone who has that like level of stability where they're like, yeah, I'm living in the same house I grew up in or same neighborhood, like I'm just so jealous because I'm like, that is a beautiful and deep, deep connection with the community that you're in. But there's a, there's a pain in moving that unless you've moved a lot, you don't quite get it, right? I mean, there's the bodily pain, right? It, it's, it's laborious, and I'm, like, getting to that age where I'm like, I think it's worth hiring somebody out. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do any of that, right? So there's bodily pain. There's the emotional pain, and I'm a sucker for this. I don't know how you all are, but, like, I go back through the house when it's all empty, and I look at, like, all the different rooms. I'm like, it's where Andrew walked for the first time, right? Then you're like, oh, that blood stain over there. I remember that. Yeah, that was a good day. That was a good day. You know, and you, like, go through all the rooms and say, that's, that's me. That That's that, like, emotional, like, draining part of it. You know, I, and, and then there's the part of just, like, comfort in the surroundings. I'll never forget when we moved to New Jersey and we were living in Princeton. One of the first things that she, yeah, I got a little shout-out for New Jersey. One of the things that that we loved, and I'll never forget it with Aaron. She drove down the road from Princeton down to Lawrenceville. And she came home, she's like, I found a TJ Maxx. <laughs> They're like, oh, it's a real world, yes! <laughs> you just you have no idea about these little anchor points in your life. You know, you move, you have to give up your favorite burger joint, you have to find all these new things. And then, of course, the context of moving that's uh, maybe the most painful is the relational connection, right? You, you move into a new space, and at least for a while... Um, Hopefully, you've got some anchor point for why you're moving, but at least for a while you feel alone. There's the pain of finding a new church uh, community if you're a person of faith. There's the pain of sort of finding a new working community to be a part of. There's all that relational pain that goes into it. And and in fact, just this week I heard this story. Uh, It happened during the pandemic, but a young boy by the name of Damien, he and his family moved, and Damien was eight, about to turn nine when he moved, and his family moved five hours away, he's, he's up in uh, British Columbia, so they're a Canadian family, but they moved five hours away from home, and it was just before his birthday, and as I listened to the story of Damien, the thing that just broke my heart is his family, they were, they were trying to celebrate his life, and celebrate him as he turned nine, and Damien looked at them, and he's like, I don't want to have a party at all, all right, because I feel like I'm the only one in the world. I don't have any friends. I don't think anybody will want to be there. And and that's the weight of this transition. This is the weight for him. What should have been a moment in his life of celebration and joy and gladness and lots of cake and sugar, all of those things became a moment of sadness and despair, and Damien had lost the joy in his life because he felt like he was the only one in the world. He stood alone in this. He felt totally alone. And and I believe as we're talking about joy, I think it's important for us to remember the power that relationships play in helping us navigate and live into a satisfaction in our world. Relationships hold this sort of power in our lives, and life-giving connections with other people can bring us joy. Right? And in the same way, if we're, uh, if we're apart from those relationships, just like Damien, our joy can fade away. We can feel the pain of isolation. We feel like no one else can identify with our pain. We feel like we're all alone in the world in our struggle. And just like Damien, moments like that where we feel alone, when we feel isolated, our joy goes away. It leaves us. And we're standing there by ourselves. And over the last few weeks, you know, I've talked about different elements of joy in our life. And most of the time, what I've done as I've talked talked to us about these elements of joy is I've looked at it from this sort of like vertical perspective. What do we need to do in relation to God to change our elements of joy? Sometimes it's our relationship with time. Sometimes it's our perspective on the world. Sometimes it's our relationship with power. And all of those things are changed in sort of that vertical relationship. But over the next two weeks, I want to talk to us about the horizontal relationships. I want to talk to us about our relationships with each other and how those relationships are really one of the most important things in maintaining joy in our lives, And so this week and next week, we're going to look at the context of relationships in order to discover where joy can, can be found and how we can live into it. And see, th- one of the things that I just want to set from the very beginning is that relationships with other people in relationship to joy are not about what we can get from other people. It's not transactional. I'm not trying to find someone in my life so that they can solve the problem that I'm going through when I'm going through a struggle. What I'm trying to find is a fellow traveler. Right? So often in our lives, we don't need problem solvers. We need fellow travelers who will go with us. We need others who are in our life to remind us simply that we're not alone. We're not alone in our grief. We're not alone in our suffering. We're not alone in our our pain and all of those things. And, And they may have experienced what we're going through, or they may not have experienced exactly what we're going through. But here's the difference. We need those people who are willing to walk the path with us whether they've experienced the same thing or not in their life. And in all likelihood, they've not, because all of us have a variety of experiences in the world. And so we need someone who will walk along with us. And so often we get this confused. We think that in order for us to have a meaningful relationship with somebody, we need an exchange, right? We need their wisdom to be imparted to us. We need their insight or we need their help because they have a skill that we don't have and and we pull them. But that's, that's not it. The richest connections that you will ever have in life, in our life, they're grounded in our being, not in our doing. They're grounded in who you are and who the person that's next to you is. It's not what someone does for us that brings the joy. It's who they are. For who they are is very much who you are. And even though they haven't experienced the same circumstances, they've dealt with similar feelings or they've walked similar paths in their lives. And as we come together, we start to see how much we share in common, we start to see how we each have dealt with the weight of the world in this way. And these are the types of relationships that come up all the time in Paul's letters. They particularly come up in Paul's prison epistles, but in the book of Philippians, they are all over the place. In his prison epistles, Paul writes his letters together with other people. He's not doing it by himself. In the prison epistles, when he's all, in this, all, all all by himself, he's actually talking more about relationships. And interestingly enough, in a moment where Paul would need to have people in his life because they're trying to separate him, he is willing to share his relationships with other people. And we're going to see that today, that he's actually willing to take the step to pass it on. In the Philippian church, as Paul writes this letter, there's all kinds of references to these life-giving connections that he has, but unlike some of the other letters, he wants to remind us that these relationships that he has are a key to him having joy in this moment. He's in one of the greatest struggles of his life, and it's the relationships that are there that hold the key to joy in his life, and this deep and persistent joy in the middle of his trials is bound up with the joy of his friends. And his willingness not to just keep those friends for himself, but to share those friends with others. To reach out and to send them out to other people. And at the end of chapter 2, which is where we're turning today, which is what Hayden read for us just a little while ago, we see two of those friends. We see two of those friends start to pop up just beyond the verse that Hayden ended with, verse 18. We see them named in verse 19. He says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered on by the news of you, right? He finds joy in sending Timothy out, because you will find joy in being with him. Like, he has this concept in his mind that if I can just get Timothy with you, your joy will be restored, and in your joy being restored, my joy will be restored. I'll find pleasure in that moment. And then he goes on, and he brags for the next few verses about Timothy. He says in verse 20 and 21, I have no one like him in all the world who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for your well-being. All of them, all of the others, they're self-seeking. They're looking after their own interests in the world. Not of those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy, Timothy's worth, you know. He, how like a son with a father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. He's always been there. He's always been connected with me. And then in verse 23, he goes on, I hope therefore to send him to you as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I will also come soon as well. I'm going to send him ahead. I, I could keep him for myself. It'd be great. You know, we're playing some neat games at night. We've got this chess match going on every night. But I'm going to send him to you instead. Instead of doing that and holding for myself, I want to go ahead and send him out to you. And he explains in this context the depth of the relationship that he and Timothy has. But in the context of that depth, he's willing to share. He's willing to say, You can have that same depth of relationship as well, and my joy will be made complete if I can share that relationship with you. But that's not all. uh, Timothy's not the only one. He continues on. There's another one he wants to send their way. He says, Still, I think it's also necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my co worker, and fellow soldier in the Lord. He's your messenger and the minister to my need in this time. You see what what happened and this is an interesting exchange of relationships here. Timothy originates with Paul and goes to the church. Epaphroditus originates with the church, goes to Paul and is about to go back to the church. And in this movement, Paul is trying to demonstrate to us this sort of reciprocity and mutuality of relationships, how they're shared amongst one another and how we share those relationships with each other. Sometimes we think the relationships we have in our lives we should just protect for our own and hold those tight, but ultimately healthy and life-giving relationships, life-giving connections, have that sense of reciprocity where we share those people with others in our lives and we allow them to find the same joy that we have found in that life giving connection. Paul knows that they sent Epaph- Epaphroditus to him. He knows that. But he longs to be, and but Epaphroditus longs to be reunited with them. And so Paul continues on in verse 26. He says, for he, Epaphroditus, has been longing for all of you. His heart is just aching for you. He wants to be with you. And he's been distressed because you heard that he was sick. He, you heard that he was ill. And in fact, he was ill. He was, he was indeed so ill that he nearly died i'm not going to deny it paul says i know that's what happened and and i just want you to know that but here's the amazing thing god had mercy on him not only on him but god has also had mercy on me so that i would not have one sorrow after another by being in jail and then losing this close connection but god had mercy on me because he saved epaphroditus's life i find joy he's living you should find this joy and so paul is going to send both of these individuals back to the churches. And in the next verse, in the final kind of set part of this section, he tells us why. Verse 28, he says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, in order that, so that. Here's the why. There's two reasons. So that you may rejoice at seeing them again, and that I may be less anxious. Now, this is very interesting. There's two things that come about here. I want to connect you in this way relationally, and I want you to have this connection in your life so that your joy might be there and so that I could be less anxious. Now, this is exactly what I think life-giving relationships do for us. This is why they're so important for us as we go through the, the world that we're living in right now and just generally in life. Connections have the power to restore joy and to reduce anxiety. and help us restore joy and reduce anxiety. In Paul's life, they, they, the joy came to the Philippian church members. Right? He was handing that joy on to them, and in seeing that they would be filled with joy, his heart was filled with joy because he could witness the grace of God at work uh, in Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus's life, and then the church folks could see it as well. Paul had already seen the way that that Epaphroditus had been healed. He already saw that gracious, miraculous move. And, and Paul was there, but the church had not seen it. And Paul knew that that church was facing all kinds of persecution. And in the world that they were living in, they had very few rewards. They needed a win in their life. They needed that encouragement. They needed to see something. And Paul knew it as they're facing all this this persecution as their leader is trapped in prison and their friend and fellow uh, worker in, in Christ is now suffering from this disease. They need a little bit of good news in all of the bad that's going on. And in a real way, Epaphroditus is that good news. The moment that they can see him, they may still be dealing with the weight of the world around them, but they get this witness of God's presence in their midst. They get to see how God has moved in Epaphroditus' life, and that starts to encourage them, and their hearts are filled with joy because they can see once again how God is at work in the world. They see it, and that connection between them and Epaphroditus plays a real part in helping restore hope into their life, and that's what connection does for us, for you and I. Life-giving relationships give us the ability to share our joy with each other, our circumstances, what your circumstances, what you're dealing with right now, may not produce a whole lot of joy. You may feel the weight of suffering around you. But there's this amazing thing that happens in the context of relationships where someone's el- someone else's circumstances can start to pour joy on us. I don't know if you've ever tried this. I used to do this with, with Andrew and other kids in my life all the time. Just start laughing. Right, and see how long it takes for them to start laughing? Right, laugh for no reason at all. Just, just, just belly laugh, right? And then everybody in the room slowly starts to laugh. And they're like, I have no idea why I'm laughing. Would you stop? And then you just keep going and keep going, right? It has this effect of, of spreading the joy all around. And in fact, children do this quite often for most of us. Their innocence and their, their element of play in life just by watching them. You may have had a terrible day, but just watching children or watching um, uh, others in our lives it starts to fill our hearts with joy. All those concerns start to fade away, and there's a sharing of joy just in the context of relationship. This is is how relationships start to help us overcome our circumstantial struggle and the the circumstances that are on, on in our life. And getting to this point is not always easy for any of us. Sometimes it's really hard to get to the point of sharing because there's this natural response inside of us that causes us to isolate. Whenever I'm in the midst of pain, and it's sort of a natural response, I want to pull back from other people so that I don't get hurt anymore. But in pulling back from other people in the context of pain, I only hurt myself more. I only exacerbate the problem. And so we have to push against that temptation towards isolation, and we have to kind of reach out for the cure that God has offered to us, which is each other. The cure for our sadness and our despair is found in the connections that we have with each other. And in the midst of struggle, when we're tempted to pull away, when we're tempted to isolate, we need to resist that temptation and find ourselves deeper in connection and relationship with each other. So connections and life-giving relationships, they help restore our joy in a very real way. But in addition to that, they also reduce anxiety in our lives. Connection restores joy. Connection reduces anxiety. And if we start with Paul here and look at what he's talking about, he has every right to be anxious in this passage. Every right. He doesn't fully know if Epaphroditus and Timothy are going to get there. He doesn't know if the church is going to respond and remain with him. He risks losing a group uh, at this church who are very dear to him because of his imprisonment. Either they'll lose faith altogether or they'll turn to a different gospel. And either way, it's it's a losing situation for him. And so all of, these, all, of this, all of his world being out of his control raises the level of anxiety. And so when he sends Epaphroditus back to the church, Paul's fears can be calmed in just a little bit, in, in just a small way. Because in a real way, they can, they can see the ministry of Paul happening in Epaphroditus. They can see the good news at work in him. And as we look at this text... I know this is a very real and specific situation that's taking place, that's producing anxiety for Paul, but on a larger scale, I just want you to think about this for a minute. On a larger scale, relational separation often creates that level of anxiety in our life. And we, I mean, we have a name for it, it's separation anxiety, this is what we deal with. As a kid, I remember this very fondly, I don't know if any of you all ever hid in the, uh, the clothing racks at the store, anybody ever, ever do that little game? I, would, I love to hide right in the middle of the clothing racks, and there's nothing quite like the anxiety of opening that clothing rack to scare your mom or dad or whoever's with you at that time, and they're not there. Right? And of course, on their side, it's the same level of anxiety. It's like, where are they in this store? We do this all the time. But there's nothing quite like that level of anxiety that comes up in the moment of separation. Some of you might experience your spouse has to go out of town on a work trip or just leaves town or something, and you can't sleep at night in quite the same way. You can't find yourself resting at night because there's an anxiety that rises in the context of separation. You could feel it just sitting in your home alone, just being alone, not having someone there before anybody else is getting there, and there's this anxiety that rises because of the separation that we feel. And when we relationally separate, our anxiety does rise. I mean, in a, in a very real way, very personal way for me, I feel this all the time. Like, I, 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 I've struggled with anxiety for a long time in my life, uh, and, and thank God, you know, I've taken some steps in my life to help with that, particularly before the pandemic struck. But, but it always surrounds, and I've noticed this about my own life, it always surrounds relational separation. I remember, uh, I remember very specifically back in college, this was a time where I had moved off three hours from home, nobody moved with me, I was by myself in this brand new town, and I had a few friends, but I was just making them, so I didn't know them very well, and there was a brief period of time in, in my journey there where our schedules missed each other, and so we stopped being with each other very much. You know, we like ate dinner together every night, and then all of a sudden it was just not happening at all. And immediately, this moment for anxiety kind of rises up, like, what do we do? what happened? Why are we not connecting anymore? You know, and all these, all, this, all these thoughts kind of start circling in your head, and you start worrying about what's going on because the separation is there. There's room for all this doubt to fill your lives, and, and as we lose control of those relationships and have those relationships close in our lives, that, that anxiety can rise. Now, that was back in 1998. Fast forward to 2020, where we as a society are asked to separate from one another. For the safety, for our physical safety and well-being, our nation, our world is placed in a space of physical isolation. Family members missed holidays, being with one another, we missed out on our friends' weddings, we, we couldn't mourn with each other at one another's deaths, we couldn't be in those spaces. And the stats don't lie about this. This is what's interesting. You can see the statistics as, it, as they've been, uh, polls have gone out over the past 18 months. And anxiety and other depressive disorders and those types of things have taken a huge uptick. But if we just think about the stats, there were studies done between January and June of 2019. And at that time, in January, um, between January and June of 2019, anxiety disorders, just anxiety alone, was at 8.2%. 8.2%. By the time we hit May of 2020, it was up to 28.2%. By the time we hit December of 2020, we'd gone up nearly another 10% to 36.9% of people saying that they had. An anxiety-related symptoms or anxiety disorder. And the same, same stats kind of go across the board with depressive disorders and those types of things. There's something that happens in the context of our separation that leads to these effects in our lives. And you know what's, what's interesting about this, and I've, I've read several articles on it this week, but as a society, we have been pushed into these moments of separation so much, and our anxiety has sort of risen so much that we've gotten to the point Where we are normalizing that reality, and this is the most interesting. One of the most interesting things I read this week, as I was reading and listening, several people have started observing that our anxiety has slowly become our virtue. Virtue? What? I don't want anything to do with that. But think about this for just a minute. You've probably had family members or others in your lives who will who will think you don't care because you don't allow your anxiety to rise up. And conversely, you might be in a situation where you think, well, I care a lot because I'm, I'm always worried and I'm always anxious about this. I'm concerned about the, the, the end results of you know, elections and, and things that are happening around the world with, with different pandemic-related uh, issues or different uh, you know, border issues or all of these things. I'm, I'm concerned, I'm worried, and that means I care. We've made a virtue out of our anxiety. If you're not worried, You don't care what's going on. And here's here's what's interesting about that. I want you to see exactly what's happening whenever this happens in our world. Whenever in our world, in our anxious world, our anxious hearts take over, they can perversely tell us that that's our virtuous heart. And here's what the Christian witness will always say to that. The Christian witness, Christian, Christian ethics are always going to push back against this. And there's, there's a couple reasons why we're going to push back against this. Number one, that's miserable. That's a miserable way to live life. That's just, I mean, as bluntly as I can put it, that is a miserable way to live. Apart from a few Puritan theologians who really like to live in misery uh, and do those things, like Christianity is not about making you miserable in life. We don't like misery. But perhaps even more than that, maybe even more importantly, This level of anxiety in our life, it really does minimize God's role in our world, and it elevates my role, Says I'm the one in control, right? I'm, I'm anxious and worried about all these things because I can control all these things, and the more we allow that anxiety to become our virtue in life and to direct us in life, the more we push down God's role and the way that God wants to control and orchestrate all things. I become my own God when my anxiety becomes virtuous. I become the master of my own domain. And so our Christian witness is constantly going to push against that. This is constantly going to say, no, God is the one who reigns and lives in our lives. And God is the one who pours mercy upon mercy. And God is the one who knows all things from beginning to end. God is the one who stands there with us in all of our struggles. And in order to turn the tide of this anxiety, we need to once again return to each other turn to each other and turn to each other as we each in each other's presence turn to God. We need each other so God's work can be done in our lives. We need each other so that our desires match God's desires. We need each other so that God's joy becomes our joy. We need each other in order to fully live into that life. And Paul talks about this in the passage that we heard just earlier today. Just before he says he's going to send Timothy and Epaphroditus back, he says this. He says, therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, do this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who has worked in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, don't mistake what he says here. He's not saying you individually need to take up your salvation and work it out. The you that he uses there, every, every single time he uses it, is plural. Y'all, let's use the southern for just a minute. Y'all work out your salvation. Together, work out your salvation with each other. Together, my, you will find your joy. Together, you'll be able to live into what God wants to do. You'll be able to discern both the will of God and you'll be able to work with God as together you do it. You know, I started this sermon out with that story about that young Canadian boy who moved five hours from home and was so sad and depressed and all these things because he was separated, and, and he told his parents exactly that, right? But the end of that story is very interesting. When he told them that he didn't want to have a party and he didn't want to have that celebration, they had a decision to make on how to best parent him, Right? How would they best approach this scenario? And there are a lot of different paths they could take. You know, they could take that disciplinarian path, like suck it up, boy, you're going to do this, just deal with it. We all struggle in life, you need to kind of man up here. They could take that therapeutic path, oh, we've moved, we need to put him in therapy, we need to figure that out, we could have done all that. But they chose a different path. They chose a path of solidarity. They chose a path where they would go on social media and they would invite other people to show him that they were still with him. They invited very simply. They just said, hey, if you don't mind, could you send him a card? He'd love to have a card on his birthday. I I know it would make his day. He's all alone. He feels like he's isolated. We just need you to send a card. And, And mainly they thought that family and friends and those who were five hours away would send that card. They didn't want anybody to come five hours. But, you know, show that they're with him, that they're in solidarity with him. And what was interesting is as they did this for Damien, he very quickly discovered he wasn't alone. As a family, one report said they stopped counting the cards at 1,200. They just kept pouring in one after the other for Damien. And not only, they'd only asked for cards, but he received over 100 packages of gifts. And they donated all the gifts to charities because they were like, no, he just needs a card. We're not giving him those. They're like, that's terrible. You give your son that gift. But that's another sermon, right? The 1,200, over 1,200 cards, 100 gifts come in. And this is the coolest thing. This is actually how I ran across this. Damien's favorite actor was Ryan Reynolds. He loved Deadpool as a movie. And Ryan Reynolds found out about this, and he sent him a video message. And he sent this message personally to Damien to connect with him. And Ryan Reynolds, as he's talking to him, Ryan Reynolds, you know, not knowing exactly what all the parents' motivation was, does exactly what they wanted. He looks into the camera and he says, Damien, I just want you to know, you're not alone. Because I've moved several times, and I felt the pain of that move. I know what it's like to move, and I know right now you feel like you're alone. You feel like you're the only one in the world, but you're not alone. This is the path of solidarity. This is the path of finding joy and healing in the context of our collective suffering by standing with one another. Did Ryan end that off by saying, well, here's what you need to do. Here's your three-step program to figure out how to... No, no, he didn't do that. He said, I'm standing with you in this moment. You know, ultimately, this is the pathway that Christ paves for us. Christ does it first. He stands in solidarity with you and I. He stands as one of us to experience the full weight of death and sin in this world and to overcome it through the power of his resurrection. But he invites you and I, as the body of Christ, to be that for each other. And so this week, I, as we leave and as the band's going to sing one closing song. Here's just a few ways in which I hope you can find solidarity with others this week. I'm just going to kind of throw these questions out there and you can sing along or you can just kind of think about how you can respond to these questions this week. But here, here's what they are. First of all, how can we stand in solidarity with someone who's in our close friend network this week? You may, maybe you've not approached them right now because you don't have the answers. Let me help you. You don't need the answers. You just need to be there and maybe you've avoided that connection because you're like it's going to be awkward it'll be awkward you control the level of awkward in the room just be there you don't need the answers you don't need the solutions you just need to stand in solidarity so who is it that you've avoided this week that you need to stand in solidarity number two maybe where can we find community that we've been avoiding maybe you've been the person that has isolated you've not found that community and you've intentionally kind of pulled aside, and and I understand it's for good reasons. You're, You're afraid of what it might mean. You're afraid of getting hurt and all those things, but you need community. Where can you find that community this week that you've been avoiding? And finally, how can we create community for someone who doesn't have it at all? How can we look around our world and start to create that community for someone who doesn't have that community so that they can have that joy we can share our joy with someone else. I'm going to pray. And as the band sings this final song, I just want you to sit in those three questions. How can, you find, how can you stand in solidarity? How can you personally find community? And how can you create community? And let us together share that joy with each other this week. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you so much for your goodness that surrounds us in this moment. My heart is filled with gratitude for Christ who stands in solidarity with us. Who offers us a path forward where we can stand with each other. I know we don't always have the answers. I know you don't always offer to them to us on golden tablets but you do invite us into a place of relationship, of shared connection. And so God, as we pause here at the end of this service, and once again soak in beauty of worship through song, we also still ourselves for just a minute to listen for how we can respond today. Spirit of God, I ask that you would speak to those who are gathered here, speak to those who are going, joining us online. Speak in a very personal and intimate way to each of us. Help us discover where we need to create community and where we need to soak in community today so that we can have our joy restored and our anxiety reduced. We can rest in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.